0: Good morning, it's good to see you, open your Bibles if you will to Romans chapter 1, we'll be looking at verses 24 through 27 uh, today, and uh, entitled the message, A Right Response to a Sovereign God, Right Response to a Sovereign God, um, I aim to be brief today, right, I see your looks, Funny. See your little snickers, your eyes kind of cut over. Everybody looks at me over their glasses when I say something like that. A couple of things. One, we're having breakfast for lunch. Enough said, right? There's only a couple of things that I can think of that are better than that breakfast for breakfast and breakfast for supper. And I don't like breakfast except for a couple of different times, and that's. When I'm by myself and when I'm with somebody else, only two times, all right? The only places I care for it is at home or away from home, only two places, all right? This qualifies for away from home, sort of. So we have that, and then we have the ordinance of baptism uh, immediately after uh, the, the sermon. So, um, so we're, there's a couple of reasons that I'd like to try to get said what needs to be said, what the Lord wants to be said, I believe, uh, so we can move on. A few weeks ago, I shared with y'all a note that had been left in one of the pew Bibles. Uh, It's found by one of our families, and it came just before I was moving into this section, and I thought, okay, well, that's that's a lead-in to at least one of my sermons, but I've mentioned it two or three times, but I want to deal with the whole of it this morning as my introduction. And then I want to move from that introduction into thinking about the thinking that is in this note. I want to move from that thinking into God's thinking and how we should guard ourselves from moving into this way of thinking. And it's so easy to do. This note represents an exchange of the truth for a lie. I want to read it, and then I'm going to go back and I'm going to answer it. That's going to be my introduction. And then I want the Word of God to speak as to how we get there and how we keep from getting there. How we rightly respond to a sovereign God. If you think being gay is wrong, this is written on a church envelope too, tucked in a Bible, signed by, with love, a true Christian. If you think that being gay is wrong, so is premarital sex, so is divorce, so is judging others. You are not perfect. You do not live a sinless life. You do not know what God truly wants. If you want to be accepted into the heaven's gates, do not try and change someone from who they are. Love everyone and spread his word, but do not try to say you are a Christian when you judge. No sin is worse than another sin. I said earlier that this was going to be fun, and it would be fun if it wasn't so tragic. Somebody penned this. Someone under the age of 25. More than likely a young lady by the handwriting. If you think being gay is wrong, I do. Check that. I know that it is. I know that it's a sin. The Word of God testifies to it. Nature testifies to it. So is premarital sex. So is divorce. Let me pause there. They're right. It is. And we have just passed on it through the years. We've allowed it to become commonplace with no discipline from the body of Christ, with no discipline from the people of God, saying to those who call themselves the people of God, you are wrong. And calling them to the account of the word of God that they proclaim, that they say that they are. This person is absolutely right that premarital sex has no place among the people of God. None. I want to say that. Fornication of any kind has no place among the people of God. They are wrong, right along with homosexuality. We're in a section of Romans 1, that deals with that. That's why we're talking about it. So is judging others. Hang on. What do you mean when you say judging others? Do you mean condemning someone, preaching a gospel that condemns and gives them no hope whatsoever of ever being redeemed? of using judgment as a means of condemning an individual. If you're talking about that, you're right. Judging is sin. But to discern what is right and what is wrong is not a sin. We need to understand the difference. God has called us to be discerning, to know what is true and what is false, what is right and what is wrong. And we need to understand that he has called us to judge one another. Text comes right out and says it. Us, the church, the body of Christ, we are to judge one another. We are to discern what is right and what is wrong. We are, as the people of God, to hold one another to an account. You're going to judge angels, people. Right? So if you mean that, discerning between what is right and what is wrong, that kind of judging isn't sin. That kind of judging is prescribed to believers. You're not perfect. You do not live a sinless life. Now, wait a minute. No, I'm just kidding. I know. I know. You have no idea how hard it is to stand up here every week knowing how sinful I am. Thankfully, I don't have to preach my life. Just the life of Christ. I'm so glad that that's what I'm supposed to do. Not speak about how good I am, but how glorious He is. No, not. But God has given believers authority in the sense that we know what is right and what is wrong. And we're to discern that and even though my life is sinful, even though I don't live perfectly, that doesn't mean that I should be silent on what is true ever. I already dealt with this one. you do not know what God truly wants. Yes, I truly do. I read a text this morning that comes right out and says, this is God's will for you, your sanctification. I know exactly what God calls us to. Yeah, I got some interpretive problems sometimes. I have some times when it's kind of... But as a rule, we know by His Word. We know. Okay, there's, there's the end of the accusation. Not quite, but more or less. Because now the transition is being made. They have now preached the gospel of how sinful I am for thinking that being gay is wrong. And now this person wants to move to the place of telling me how I can be saved from my error. Listen, if you want to be accepted, I'm going to stop there. There is a multitude of gospel messages that are not in line with God's Word, and you're about to hear one of them. It is the gospel of secular humanism. It is the gospel that takes man and puts him at the center of all things. If you want to be accepted into heaven's gates, here, y'all hear it? The gospel's coming out. That's what they're saying. Here's the gospel. Here's the way into heaven. Here's the way into eternal life. Ah, I'm preaching an envelope here, okay. Do not try and change someone for who they are. I'm not trying to change anyone. I'm trying to preach the word that says that God changes you. I'm so thankful that God, when he saves us, doesn't leave us the way we are. What a wreck the world would be in that case. What a wreck it would be that God would save people and then leave them in their sinful ways and their sinful thinking. There would be mass chaos and murders constantly. There would never be a day of peace. There would be nothing holding back the tide of evil. Don't try to change someone. I'm not trying to change anyone. It's the Word of God. It's the Spirit of God. It's the gospel that transforms, right, for who they are. The gospel is all about changing people from death to life. And that's not accomplished through continuing in sin. So we've got to love everyone. I think I do. There's a couple of people that are on my list, but, you know, spread His word. No sin is worse than another, You're right? Except the sin of disbelief. But I want you to know the consequences of sin varies. And the sin of homosexuality is now threatening to destroy society as we know it. You think you're being overly dramatic. No, I'm not. There's not a sphere of life that it is not trying to touch. That being said, having answered that, and you'll hear some of that come through, let me turn to the word where it says, therefore God gave them up. How do we respond rightly to a sovereign God who will give you up? What does that mean? That's my first point. God gave them up. I want to explain what that means. Secondly, I want us to look at the exchange spiral. They exchanged the truth about God for a lie. I want us to see the Spiral or circling the drain, if you will, of our life apart from faith and hope in the living God. Last, I want to give you three ways that I believe the word here is giving us an expected response. How does God expect mankind to respond to the gospel? Remember what Paul's doing. He is laying the stage of why he's eager to preach the gospel and how the gospel is the only power of God that can save. And so let's look at this. It says, therefore, in verse 24, therefore God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity. And in verse 26, it says, for this reason God gave them up to dishonorable passions. What does it mean that God gave them up? The word paradidomi is giving something over to someone. It is conveying something. It's handing something to someone. It's passing something along. The something in this context is Impurity. Therefore, God gave them up the lust of their hearts to or into impurity. God gave them up to that impurity which was conceived in the lust of their hearts and manifested, according to the text, in the dishonoring of their bodies. So God did not create a punishment for their disobedience by giving them up. He gave them up to what they already had in them. He gave them up to impurity because of the lust that was in their hearts. How did they get there? (laughs) They didn't give glory to God. That's what it says earlier. It says that they uh, they did not, uh, although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him. Remember last week I, I mentioned how do we give glory to God? Number one, gratitude, and number two, trust. These two things are us glorifying God. I believe you, and I thank you. I mean, that's glorifying God. So. And when we don't do that, it leads us to this place of having in us. It brings about a conception of lust for everything around us. So he gave them up to what they already had in them. That is the course of sin and rebellion, but it doesn't fully answer the question of what does it mean that God gave them up? Chrysostom. Chrysostom. I've never been able to pronounce that, the, pronounce that the first time. Chrysostom. I'll get it right. I put the syllables in the wrong place is what happens. Uh, but uh, Chrysostom uh, interpreted and understood this as giving them over in a passive sense. In other words, by withdrawing his influence over those disobedient idolaters, God permits them to continue in and plunge more deeply into the sin they had already chosen. In other words, God just let them go. Let them go in their own passions. Let them go in their own things. And although this is a partial interpretation, there's more to it than that one commentator said it put it this way in terms of giving an analogy or a word picture put it this way God ceased to hold the boat as it was dragged by the current of the river in other words picture a, a little skiff if you will In the river, and God holding on to it, keeping you from being pulled by the current. Society, sinfulness, temptation, all these things, the current of this world. Isn't that what it feels like sometimes as the people of God that we're swimming upstream? Well, we kind of are. But here's this boat, and God's holding on to it, and the current is just really fast, and not too far down the road, there are some rapids. And a skiff isn't built for that. And in what Chrysostom is saying, and what this other commentator is saying, God just simply lets go and lets them go on the way that they have chosen. But the text here says God gave them up. Paradidomai, it's in the active voice. It's not God being passive. God is doing the action here. And He's not merely releasing the boat. Douglas Moose suggests He doesn't simply let go of the boat. He gives it a push downstream. Did y'all understand what I said? He doesn't just let them go. He pushes them along. Go, go ahead. He gave them up. It's a very active word going on. He's not just handing them something. He's letting them go in their own way, but He's giving them a push down the road or the river. You wouldn't have a skiff on the road, okay? For what purpose? Will He never save them? He can And will, if they repent and believe. I don't believe that sin ever leads us to the cross. I do believe that the consequences of sin cause us to rethink the direction of our life. I do think that the turmoil and the despair and the the depression and the overwhelming weight That comes from our sinfulness. Brings us to a place where we cry out. Save me. I believe that with all my heart. And I believe that's the purpose for which he gives the boat a little shove down the river. The purpose is so that we will repent and believe. Believe. The disobedience of Israel led to judgment in a variety of ways and ultimately into exile where they lost the land that God had given them. It was never to be theirs again until 1948 A.D. or whatever they call it today. We see this in some of other places in First Timothy, look with me there. First Timothy chapter 1, verse 20. Ah, we'll go to 19. By rejecting, verse 19, 1 Timothy chapter 1, by rejecting uh, faith and a good conscience, some have made shipwreck of their faith. Among whom are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan that they may learn not to blaspheme. (laughs) I'm handing them over to Satan. Uh, We're we're taking all their authority away in the church so that they'll learn not to blaspheme. Because the path that they're on is going to lead to destruction. And our hope is that they will turn back. 1 Corinthians chapter 5, 1 Corinthians chapter 5, we see Paul writing to this church at Corinth. And in verse 1 uh, through verse 5, it is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that is not tolerated even among pagans. For a man has his father's wife, and you are arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. For though absent in body, I am present in spirit, and is, as if present, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. I already know what's the right thing here. I've already pronounced a judgment. He was wrong. He needs to be gone. He needs to be removed. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus and my spirit is present with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Now, they're not going to skin him alive. That's not what he's talking about. What he's talking about is removing him from the fellowship. And in doing so, I mean, he's losing all sorts of things. What's he being doing? Turned over. For what purpose? So that. See his destructive ways. And return. I was thinking about all this and I couldn't help but think of Proverbs 23, 13. Do not withhold discipline from a child. If you strike him with a rod, he will not die. If you strike him with a rod, you will save his soul from Sheol. Hmm. god's given them a whooping by helping them along downstream yeah go ahead go on and go through that we do that with our kids don't we yeah go on jump out of that tree see what happened no you don't do that do you I was going to a grocery store one day, and a, this little two-year-old crawled right out of that thing, and boom, I mean, hit the floor, and I, of course, I'm nuts. You know, I take a step, well, dad's there, mom's there, dad picks him up. Well, they won't do that again, you know. <laughs> it's kind of like that, though. Except this is God going, look, I'm going to turn you into your thing, and this is what you want, so I'm going to help you along. I'm so thankful that he created all the rivers and he's ever-present. i had a time like that in my own life. And I want you to know he was standing on the bank when my skiff crashed and he rescued me. By the blood of Jesus Christ, he saved me. He gave them up. And the destruction is horrendous. Not all of them will turn. Not all of them will look at this destruction as a bad thing. You say, how do you come to that conclusion? Paul's talking about why he wants to preach the gospel, he's setting the stage. Look, this is why the gospel is necessary. This is where the heart of man is. So he gave them up for a purpose that they would repent and believe, that they would turn. Next thing, the exchange spiral. We see how they get to a place where God says, I'm going to give you up. I'm going to push you on down the river. How did they get there? I mentioned it earlier by failing to give glory to God. Those two basic things of gratitude and trust. I hope in you, the lack of these two actions on the part of man leads to a particular arrogance that leads to Despair. I mean, when you think about it, if you don't thank God and if, if you don't uh, 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 glorify God in uh, trusting Him, uh, it will turn into a, uh, a hope that is based on self-gratitude and self-trust. I, I don't think any of us have in us The capacity to provide everything that we need in this life, nor the wisdom to guide ourselves through it without the Word of God. I mean, if all I have to hope for, all I have to hope in, all I have is based on self gratitude and self trust, I'm sunk to carry on the analogy. I mean, I'm sunk. I mean, all I will ever do is thank myself and praise myself. And everything will be about me. That's all you'll do. And I know people like that. Everything's about them. Everything's about what somebody else did to them. It's not about God not about His glory. It's not about His goodness and allowing us to suffer. That we may learn and grow in trusting Him. One who does this, who self-trust and self-gratitude. Hang on, I just knocked my microphone off. Those who do, they peak early, you know? I mean, those who trust themselves and thank them, they peak early. We can't keep giving better gifts to ourselves. But instead, what happens is there's this steady downward spiral of gratitude for a slow progression of destruction to the point that I am grateful merely because I'm not dead yet. They go from not glorifying God, not giving glory to God, uh, to... Uh, having lust in their heart that leads to impurity. That, uh, and that impurity multiplies itself into dishonorable passions that leads to women exchanging natural relations for those that are contrary to nature and men likewise giving up natural relations with men, with women. Uh, and were consumed with passion for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves what? The due penalty for their error. They're constantly saying, I'm right. You're wrong. We get on this spiral, I don't give glory to God. I'm consumed with myself and my pleasure, and that's what we're seeing coming through this. But not only that, it leads to this of not speaking rightly about God. Notice how Paul closes verse 25. Because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the Creator who is blessed forever. Amen. Who is blessed forever. I mean, He's speaking rightly about God, but they're not. We go from not giving Him glory to failing to believe the truth about God Failing to speak rightly about God. He says there, who is blessed forever. Blessed is eulogetas, logos, word, you, good, good word, to speak good words, eulogy, speak good words about someone. This would speak of praise. He is to be praised. And they don't praise Him. They don't speak well of Him. He's not seen as over creation, but is now considered wrong and evil for His words against sin. We live in a world that is filled with humanistic reasoning that will speak right things about God. He doesn't make any mistakes. Isn't that true? In wrong context. I'm on the right track, baby. I was born this way. If you want to know the source of theology such as this, look to the likes of Lady Gaga and the movement of the LGBTQ+. They speak wrongly about God. God is pleased with homosexuality. No, he is not. No, he is not. They speak wrongly about him. Man, you see the spiral? We just spiral, keep going on and on, down and down, to where our minds are so demented we call evil good, and that which is good, evil. So, what's the expected response? I'm going to keep from repeating myself here. Okay, I'm going to repeat myself once. One, glorify God by giving gratitude and trusting him for everything. Second, honor marriage. Man, how'd you get to marriage from this passage? Don't y'all see the relationships that are skewed why are they skewed because marriage is not being honored they're dishonoring their bodies it says they gave them up uh, to, they gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves what does that mean he doesn't define it It's not what's going on in the beginning in verse 26. It's something else. It's fornication of another kind. Turn with me, if you will, to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. I read this during my pastoral prayer this morning, but let me read it again through verse 6. Finally, then, brothers, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus that you receive, that as you receive from us, you ought, how you ought to walk and to please God, just as you are doing, that you do so more and more. For you know what instructions we gave you through the Lord Jesus. For this is the will of God. Your sanctification, what does that mean? That you abstain from sexual immorality. Which ones? All of them. Particularly this one. That each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor. Not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God. That no one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter. Because the Lord is an avenger in all these things. As we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you. Verse 7. For God has not called us for impurity, but in holiness. That phrase, how to control his own body or how to take a wife for himself, or how to possess his own vessel. Paul said it this way in Ephesians 5, no one hates his own body. To use these bodies in a way that is right according to God. How do we do that? We honor marriage. We value marriage. One of the things that's not going on in Romans chapter 1, and it's completely silent, it's not there, is the relationship between a husband and a wife. It's there, but it's not mentioned. Its absence is what produces the chaos of Romans chapter 1 and the chaos of our own time. You say, well, we have gay marriage. No, we do not. What is called gay marriage is not marriage at all. It cannot be. It never will be. It is an abomination before the living God. You might be thinking... Boy, they're not going to go for that gospel. Well, I'm not going to share it that way. I'm just hoping that you will never buy the junk philosophy and junk theology that exists in our day that brings a young person to think like this. And I look at you parents. and You have young people. I urge you, hang on, I've got to grab it. I urge you, with tears in my eyes, do not let your children go to this thinking. How do I prevent it? One is where you're sitting right now. You keep being faithful. Two, you read this every single day in your home. Yeah, I'm afraid they're going to ask me a question that I'm not going to have an answer to. They are. They are. They're going to. I'm just going to let you know. They're going to. Y'all ask me questions I don't have the answer to all the time. Well, let me get back to you. <laughs> Do not let your children, do not let someone else have responsibility for training your children in the Word of God and teaching them truth. Don't do it. Teach them the truth about marriage through your own. Let them see. Oh, that's the gospel. Ultimately, that's what they ought to see in your marriage. The gospel. It's God's intent. That and to be fruitful and multiply and flourish. Fill the earth with People. With the praises of God on their lips. Honor marriage. Control his own body. To obtain his own vessel. Not to be running around with all kinds of women, but to have one. Not to be running all, all over the place with all kinds of men, but to have one. God intends for you to love her. and For you to respect him. The expected response is that marriage would be honored. The last thing, already dealt with. Speak rightly about God. Say, well, there's some things about God I don't understand. Good. Say, how's that good? How could you worship a God that you understand everything about Him? I mean, He's mysterious. Deuteronomy 29:29, 29, 29, man, that's my go-to for, I don't know, you know, the secret things belong to God. <laughs> that's some stuff I don't know, some stuff you don't know. But what we do know speak rightly. I mean, when Job had finally repented and said, "I'm sorry," he said, "Man, I'm angry with your friends." Well oh, I am too, God.) <laughs> He was. Why? They have not spoken rightly about me. They have attributed some things to me that is not my doing, but the doing of sinful mankind. They have accused me of doing wrong which Job did not do. Learn to speak rightly about God. We respond to Him rightly by glorifying Him, by honoring marriage, by speaking rightly about Him. Let your heart be one that pursues these things. Let's pray. Father, we want to thank you For how you have loved us with an everlasting love. How you have called us to be sanctified, to be purified, to be cleansed. How you have called us to put sin to death in our own life. How you have called us to resist the evil one, to resist temptation. And Father, I pray you would raise that up in us, that desire, Lord, to not sin. Father, that our practice would be to stand firm against it and say no. And to lean into you in every way so that we have the strength and the truth to stand fully, in full confidence. Lord, we love you and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.